welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you here with us today. Before we get started with our guest on the podcast today, I have a couple of housekeeping things. The first one is to let you know about our upcoming free webinars titled The Five Steps to Unlock Your Salon's Potential. And then for those of you that are serious about growing your business, that will be followed up by an introduction into the next launch of the online Super Stylist course. So to register, visit growmysalonbusiness.com forward slash register. And I'll also put that link into the show notes for today. So on with today's podcast. My guest on the show today is Ashley Tolliver-Williams. She is a salon owner, educator, and entrepreneur from Houston, Texas. And she has a passion and a commitment to the industry that's refreshing no matter where you live. So listen up. This is going to be another great episode. In today's podcast, we'll discuss changing the reputation of the salon industry. Where should salon owners be focusing their time the responsibility to train your team to be better humans as well as better hairdressers, and what is the salon culture and how do you create it, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Ashley. Hi, Anthony. How are you? I'm very good, and I'm really excited about talking to you today. I've, uh, I've been doing a bit of research on you, and I find you very inspiring and motivational, and I think you're just what Salon owners need to hear everywhere. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a great hour. So let me start off with an overview of your background. What I usually do is I get people to pretty much introduce themselves. So um, who is Ashley Tolliver-Williams? Give us your sort of two-minute backstory, and then we can uh, jump into everything after that. Absolutely. So, Anthony, I'm a hairdresser. I mean, that's really at the core of it. I'm a hairdresser. 20 years ago, I left college after about two and a half years, told my parents I needed a break. And what was I going to do? My mom suggested that I go to cosmetology school. And so here I am. So about three years into the industry, I was in a hair salon that closed and there were three of us that still wanted to work together. They're both quite a bit older than me. And the conversation went to somebody should open a salon. I was like, I don't want to, I was 25 and not capable and, um, in my eyes and they had no desire to do it either. So, um, long story short, my parents again gave me encouragement to do it. So I opened a small four chair salon. They leased from me for five years and we really did that until I started working with an apprentice and started seeing sort of a different vision of growing people and all of that. And so six years into salon ownership, I opened a larger salon that's called Fringe Salon and Color Bar that's in Houston, Texas. And along the way, throughout the course of that journey, I educated for companies um, mostly focused in color education. And then about four to five years ago, I started to do some business education with a manufacturer called Euphoria International. I ended up taking over their business education um, all of their their education 
um, platform on the business side. So everything that was um, from curriculum development to training educators, I got very involved in a lot of those things. And I went on this personal journey of really trying to figure out the leader that I needed to be, the how we do business in this industry not the way that everyone was doing business in this industry necessarily, but how are the best business owners and leaders conducting themselves in the world? And I really went on this journey of study. I'm a um, consistent, constant student. I can't, if I don't know the answer to it, I have to figure it out. So, you know, throughout the course of that, I started seeing things that I felt like could be shared and different for four people that were really working in my business and were working in businesses that, that I had spoke to around the nation and a part, my business partner and I, so I started a new business in August, 2019. It's called Fuse Republic. And, um, my business partner, Timothy Humphreys and I, he's in sales. I'd been on the, you know, styling end of it and salon ownership. And we really connected on growth of business. I mean, he had seen thousands of salons and get, gotten to know thousands of salons. And I had gotten to know a lot of salon owners and a lot of hairdressers. And just together, we started seeing a different way that things could be done in this industry and really set out on a journey to do that. Part of that business is um, in product distribution. And part of it is in um, what most people in our industry would equate to coaching and consulting. So we right. believe in, in moving things forward in a different way. I think that a lot of people are focused in, in this industry right now. And so that's the, that's the sum up. Okay, that's there. good. That's, we can dig into a lot of that stuff. So, so uh, it's good just to sort of give an outline of what your background is and who you are and what you do. Um, so complete change attack. What do you do for fun? <laughs> I mean, I think that what I get to do every day on this career path and in this industry can be fun, sometimes not. But yeah. I think that, um, you know, I'm kind of one of those people that, I love to, I love to work out. I love health and health and wellness and all of that stuff. That's sort of my personal escape. Mm -hmm. I love, you know, hanging out with my kids and doing all that stuff, but work is probably my number one source of fun because I love solving problems. And there's, you know, when you're in business, there's a lot of problems to solve. So good, that's, good. But I, I, I love that answer. Because that's the sort of answer I give. I mean, I, I, I just work all the time. And sometimes I feel bad about saying that. But I do it because I love it, you know. And it is fun in, in some shape or form. Uh, so it's good to hear someone else who, who thinks it's fun. Now, I might be misinformed on this. Uh, but I read somewhere or heard somewhere that when you alluded to the fact that you were at college, university, uh, you were actually doing maths. But that was your thing. Am I correct with that? I was a math, a math major. Right. So, so for you to say to your mom, oh, I'm thinking of taking a year out, you know, or so, and her saying, well, why don't you go to beauty school? I think that is, that is not a typical response that you would get from your mom. Do you know what I mean? Go to beauty school and, and do hairdressing when you're uh, a math major at, at college or university. That's a, that's a big uh, that's a big sidestep. And I think that that's actually an interesting sidestep because it's, it's giving you exposure or insight or an approach or whatever it's going to be to an industry where you look at it in a different way 
to most people that are in the industry. And I think that's a really good thing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that. Um, you've talked already a little bit about your journey into how you got into salon ownership. Uh, do you still do hair on the floor? I do not. I'll, uh, there's a few technique classes and things that I teach and I'm involved in our education program a teeny tiny bit, like minuscule yeah. compared to what my team does, but I do not actively take clients. Okay. So when you're talking to um, other managers, your own or, or other people's managers in the industry, where do you tell them owners uh, where they should be focusing their time? You know, I look at this two ways and it's interesting. I'm going to, tell a little story on this because it reminds me of um, I was in Canada speaking to a group room full of salon owners and I was talking about everything you need to do in business because I think the natural reaction to um, in our industry to a salon owner because let's say 95 97 percent of salon owners are hairdressers there's that small percentage of crazy individuals, respectfully, I say that, who come into this industry, not knowing this industry and open yeah. businesses, right? Yeah. Majority of them don't have great success in it or don't stay very long because yeah. it's a tough business. Yeah. But most salon owners are hairdressers. So when you look at those people, number one, when you go into salon ownership, your number one role then becomes business owner. Mm -hmm. But you ask how they spend their time. I don't believe, and I'll share, I'll share this in a story with a, a gentleman that I met in Canada who had got very emotional about this. I don't believe that every single salon owner has to not be behind the chair. I do believe that every salon owner has to have their business as their top priority, meaning mm -hmm. it's, it's where their mind sits. They recognize and see themselves as the business owner first, not as the lead stylist first. Yeah. But what that can look like is understanding, you know, people that you need to hire. It can look like understanding the gaps that you need to fill if you are going to be a busy hairstylist behind the chair. And I was walking through all of this stuff that needs to happen in serving a team. And, you know, we were talking about one-on-ones. We were talking about all of this stuff. When I'm in, I'm speaking in front of this room full of about 60, 70 salon owners in Canada. And this one gentleman who, this is the the second or third time that I'd been there, they, they hired me for a year. And so I went there, I think three different times. And I think this is the last time I was there and I'm talking to them, walking through all of these things. And everybody's very excited about all of this, all these resources, but this one man had completely shut down and he's, um, he's French. He is, um, very, very successful has, has created a, a beautiful salon, but he's looking for like, that answer that I feel like a lot of us are with his people. He's just looking for what do I do with these people? Right. Mm. And he was so emotional. He almost had tears in his eyes and he sat back in his chair and like just sort of threw his hands up. And he was just like, I am so busy and I am a hairdresser. I love being a hairdresser. It's what I'm always going to do for my entire life. And I just don't know where in the world you believe that I'm supposed to do this or have the time to do this or so on and so forth. And I'm not stepping away from the chair. That's not why I came into this industry. And he just went into this very passionate, you know, with, with the, those tears in his eyes. And he was just so on fire. And so you'll often see me be very physical if I'm in, a, if I'm in a teaching setting live. 
I mean, you're seeing me be physical now. I'm shaking my hands and waving them off <laughs> to the audience. But when I get very passionate, one connection piece that I learned from someone a long time ago um, that is can just be a really easy way to connect with somebody who's having a hard time with something that you're saying. And I would say this to any leader out there who's dealing with your team and you want to sort of raise that wall that's being built because he was throwing up a wall. He was like, I don't want to hear anything else that you have to say. You're making me upset. You're telling me I need to quit my dream. Like that was the story that was being created in his head. Mm. So I walked up to him. I got right in front of him and I leaned down. Like I got very close to him. I'm sure he was, he was already sitting back in his chair. He was like, why is this chick getting so close to me? And I got really close to him and I put my hand out. And I waited because he did not want to put his hand in my hand. He put his hand in my hand and I put my hand over his, over his hand. So it's my hand, his hand, my hand. And I looked at him dead in the face and I said, it's okay if you want to be the hairdresser. It's okay if you want to be passionate and be amazing at what you love to do. It's okay. But you have to to make sure this is happening in your business, mm -hmm. even if it's not happening at your hands. Mm -hmm. And so there was like a little relief from him that it didn't have to be him. Mm. And, but also this recognition that it still has to happen. It doesn't matter if you can't, if you're not the one that has the time for the one-on-ones, they still have to happen. It doesn't matter if you don't have time to create a new marketing strategy to help people in your business who are not busy when you're crazy busy, make sure that they get busy. You still have to make sure that it happens. It doesn't matter. You don't necessarily have to be the one to do it, but you have to be the one to lead it and you have to be the one to make sure that it's happening in your business no matter what. Yeah, and that's, that is a, a key foundation of a lot of successful businesses, you know, where they'll often have a partner. Sometimes it's a silent partner. You don't even know that it's a partner. I can think of some, some very big, uh, very successful hairdressing organizations all over the world that might have a front man or front woman who is the, the brand name, but they're not the business person. There's someone else behind them that makes that work. And it's, it, and that's okay. It's just understanding that, and even in small businesses, you'll often see it with, and it's often a husband and wife arrangement where maybe the wife isn't a hairdresser or, or is the hairdresser and the husband isn't or whatever. And that they do this double act where one person looks after the business side, the other one looks after the hairdressing side. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's all about what you said. It's all about acknowledging that these are two completely different roles. And you don't, you know, I, I had this occasion myself with a, um, a consultant that I was using years ago. And on our very first meeting, he said, so, so tell me about yourself. And I, I said, well, at the time I had three salons. And I said, well, I opened my first salon and, and he stopped me right dead in my tracks. He said, you didn't open a salon. You opened a business that happens to do hair. And to tell you all the truth, it pissed me off a little bit the way he said it. But I knew in my heart of hearts that he was dead right. I just didn't want to be told that, you know. And so it was one of those lessons that made me shift in my head that, you know, I, I was or I am a good hairdresser. But being a good hairdresser does not make you someone who's going to be good at running a hairdressing business. They're two completely separate skills. And so you either need to, you know, man up or woman up or whatever the expression is going to be and learn those skills yourself um, and, and, and devote the time to that. 
Uh, and the time can vary, obviously, depending on the size of your business. Uh, or you need to make sure that you recognize, do you know what? That's not my skill set. I'm going to employ someone else to look after that side of things. Um, as, and as you say, as long as it's being done, you don't have to do it yourself. So um, I love that story. That's, that's, that's a, great, a great bit of wisdom. Um, you had something on your website, which I, I read, and I, I know where you're going to go with this uh, because I've been listening to some other things you've done, and I, and I love it. Uh, and what it is, is on your website, you have the words written there, we specialize in hair emergencies, creating community and changing the worldview of professional stylists and salons. What I want you to do is talk about the thoughts behind that last bit, changing the worldview of professional stylists and salons. What is your thinking behind that? Because I know there's a big part of you that's sort of devoted to that cause. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think about... <laughs> My situation and how I came into the industry, and you mentioned it earlier, is very different. Um, I had, my parents were not excited that I was leaving college or that I needed a break from college, but my mom, you know, was supportive. My dad sort of said, like, you need to get up off your rear and do something. And my mom said, cosmetology school. For majority of people, it's not that way. For majority of people, they desperately want to be in this industry. It's a dream mm. of theirs. They love it. And they share that with someone important in their life. And that person says, no, that person says, my God, please don't. Mm. Um, because you're not going to ever be successful. You're not going to ever make any money. You're not going to do this. Hairstylists are unprofessional. They're this, they're that. Like there's just this whole view of this being a career for people who can't do anything else. This being a career for people who, are just kind of lost this being like a moment in time. And we've had people who are making over a hundred thousand dollars a year behind the chair and their clients mm. will still say, well, what are you going to do for your career? Yeah. And yeah. that's this, this perception, this crazy um, journey. But, you know, for me personally, what that really, what that really comes down to is when you mentioned, you know, I say to my parents, I'm going to step away and, they, and my mom says, you want to go to like, you, you should go to cosmetology school. She said that because I'd always like experimented with makeup and hair. And I'd done a lot of girls hair when I was growing up and all of that stuff. But when she said that to me, my response was like, I got as snotty as it gets. And I said, I'm not going to be some dumb hairdresser. Hmm. That was my response because I knew two hairdressers in my life. I knew a, a woman who worked in a small shop. She was working essentially just while her kids were in school. She was very, um, just sort of plain Jane, whatever, just very mousy. There was nothing inspiring about her. She was passing time. And another woman who worked in a little like homemade built thing, built salon out of her garage with her two-year-old hanging around her leg. And she gossiped with my mom the whole time that she was doing my hair. And mm. those were not women that I really aspired to be. So that was the only connection that I had to this industry or understood. So that's why my response went that way. Mm. And when I did, when people did find out because they knew my background, what I was going to be doing, she's going to cosmetology school. Oh my God. Like, why would you, why would you waste your life and waste your brain going to cosmetology school? Like that was the response from a lot of people in, um, in my life. But fast forward to answer your question directly. I believe, and this is going to sound maybe bigger than what most people may be ready for, but I believe 
that the professional hairdresser can change the world. And the reason I believe that is because there is no other profession in the world that 90, 95% of the world, whether, unless you're in an indigenous space, you're in a third world country, you're in something, everybody has a hairdresser, everyone. And the hairdresser affects more of that person's life. When you ask someone, you got five people that you can take with you, five people you can take with you. You're going to get shipped off here. You got five people. The hairdresser is going to be on that hand of five fingers. A hundred percent. When people say, when I was behind the chair and somebody would come tell me that they were moving, they would cry and they would tell me, I don't know how I'm going to find another hairdresser or another someone like you. Can I take you with me? They're not worried about their doctor. They're not worried about whoever else that, that these, these other people in their lives that you would think would be so much more important. However, it's one of the least respected, least respected professions in this world. And that has to, and needs to change. And so in our salon, our purpose has been from the, from the get-go, my belief, because my belief walking into this industry was that hairdressers were less than, because I didn't know any different. I didn't know any hairdressers that, I mean, I've met unbelievable people in this industry who would knock the socks off of most professionals that I've met across the course of my life. Mm. They're better people. They, they're a hell of a lot more fun. They also are incredible at business and you know, to be in business in this industry, you have to be in business. I mean, as it's the hardest industry in the world, I think to be in business because everybody has to be happy. So it's like this, it's like a whole other dynamic of you've got to have the logic side and the people side. Mm -hmm. And when you look at how people look at it, it's one of the least respected, but most impactful. Yeah. And our goal is to make sure that we change that perception that the impact equals the perception. And at some point in time, we get to a place where parents don't cry when their kid says, I want to go to cosmetology school. Mm. And that is all over the world. Unfortunately, it's, it's not as highly regarded in industry as what it, it varies a little bit country to country. In some countries it's held in higher esteem than others, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a huge frustration um, you know, for people everywhere, for the industry everywhere. People talk about themselves as professionals, but they often don't act or treat themselves like professionals. So, you know, first step is changing yourself as a, as a, a salon owner, as a manager, as a hairdresser. So what do you think the biggest challenges are that face salon owners today or the salon industry today? Gosh, that's a hard one. Do you mean... Um... I'd ask you to expand on it because I think that there's the side of it for salon owners in business, which points to several different things. And then I think that there's the side of salon ownership that I see being the hardest right now for people, which is the people side and the people side is always hard. Okay. They're both part of business. Yeah. I suppose what I was heading towards was because I thought this would be your answer. Uh, was about the changing business models. So, so what are your thoughts about how the industry everywhere, all over the world, is, is changing to a more independent contractor, freelancer, self-employed, 
whatever you want to call it. It's this independent business unit of one. Um, and it's not everywhere 100% for sure. But, you know, and, and I know in the US you have a lot of salon suites, for example. We don't have that many of them here. But here we have a lot of uh, self-employed people. So, you know, there's like I, I, the most recent statistic in the UK was 60% of hairdressers, stylists are self-employed, uh, which is probably a similar number to uh, the US. Uh, Australia doesn't have as big a self-employed thing, but that they have a lot of uh, home hairdressing in the Australian market. So, you know, a, a lot of it's sort of underground. But, um, you know, I wanted to see what your thoughts were about that. What do you think about the you know, the changing business model, because in line with the rest of our conversation, I think it is, I, I can see why some people want to be self-employed. I can see why some people, you know, want to be freelancers or whatever they want to call themselves. And I can see how for them, in many cases, it can be good for them in terms of flexibility and sometimes in terms of financial remuneration as well. But I, I really grapple with seeing how it could be good for the industry, because I don't think it is. I think that short-term, it's good for the indiv individual. Long-term, I think it's very bad for the industry. And within line to what you were just talking about, where, where you don't want parents to burst into tears because the kids want to become hairdressers, I, I think that that drives it in that direction, not away from that direction, because it makes it look less professional and less like a career and more like a hobby that someone might do for a bit. You know, it's interesting. I'm so glad that you asked this question. I may take it in a little different direction than, yeah, than sure, where right most people in the industry are moving it. But it's, it's funny because um, I remember when I was 25 and I started my first business, I was a successful hairstylist. In three years, I built a full clientele and was doing very, very well behind the chair. I will approach hair very differently. If somebody told me pre-book clients, I pre-book clients, sell retail, sell retail. Like I was an analytical thinker. It was just fact, do it. I didn't think and feel, I didn't feel about a bunch of stuff. So I built business really fast. And um, that was, it, that part of it was more simple for me than I feel like it is for a lot of hairdressers. But I will say this, the minute that you say, I'm starting my own business, People in your life, it doesn't matter if you have any business owning the business. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, you go girl. It's so awesome. You're going to be fantastic. Fantastic. That's so awesome. I can't believe you started your own business. Meanwhile, for you know, two to three years of me starting that business, I was in the worst shape of my life in this industry. And people were still like, oh my gosh, it's so cool that you own a business. And I remember thinking and feeling like such a fraud, but I say that because there is this celebrity feel, there is this dream feel, there is this hashtag boss babe feel to owning a business, this glamour attached to it that is being over-marketed by the suites. That if we as salon owners don't get better mm -hmm. at marketing, and telling the truth about what's going on rather than just staying pissed off about it. If we don't get better at that, it's probably going to kill every single independent salon um, mm. in the industry, but it's not going to be, the suites aren't going to kill us. We're going to kill us because mm. for the majority of 
what the majority of people that I know are really mad about it. And I personally just vulnerably have never until we came back from COVID had anyone leave my business who had built their business there in 10 years. I don't know any other salon and I've been with a lot of salon owners who could say that. And that's not to say good job to me. We were just very, very blessed. I'd not had one person leave my business in 10 years who built their business there until we came back from COVID. And then we've had a little trickle out effect. It's the first time in my whole life. But I look at this now and I want to get everybody to shift their perspective a little bit. I know that the aim is at the suites, but when I was first coming up in the industry, it wasn't the suites and I've been in the industry for 20 years, but it was the same thing. But what would happen is a group of stylists would get together, one of them spearheading it, and they would walk out of the salon and open a new salon. Now they're just opening a lot of tiny little salons. It's the same thing. So foundationally, what's the problem? It's, it's us. Like we have to look at what we're doing in that business. We have to figure out the value that people are looking for. We have to make sure that we own it, put it into that business, do it consistently so that something is there that looks more appealing and feels better mm. to the average hairdresser. Now, every now and then you're going to have people who are entrepreneurial just like you. And that's why they're going to go into a suite because it's a low expense way to start a business. And they want to be a salon owner like you, which applaud them, like tell them great job. They're going to do the same thing that you did. Hopefully they do it in an honorable way. But we as an industry have to get better or the professional, like the independent salon, it's going to die, but we're going to be the ones that killed it, not the suites. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the hairdressing industry is its own worst enemy, you know, and mm -hmm. exactly what you just said. So with your salon, Fringe Salon and Color Bar, what, what's the business model that you have there? We're employee-based. It's, right. it's commission. Okay, it's so commission. And, and that is tough. Full stop in America. It's particularly tough in California and Texas because there are so many uh, suites and, and booth rental in those markets. So, and I, you know, you alluded to before, uh, you just dropped it in stylists earning over $100,000. Uh, and that's fantastic that people are able to earn that much money. And, you know, people need to put that in perspective. I mean, the average wage in America. Uh, you know, according to, to uh, Google, is, is uh, under 50 grand. Um, so when you've got a hairdresser earning over 100 grand a year as employees, that's damn good money, especially when some of them aren't even working, you know, they're not breaking a sweat doing a 40-hour week. They're, they're even doing less than that. So, so talk to us about why is that successful for you? What, what are the ingredients to make a successful um, employee, employer, commission-based uh, business in the United States or anywhere today? So to get to, you know, it's really foundational. It's really foundational in this business that if you understand the basic, the basic business aspects that it takes to build a clientele behind the chair, and this can go through who you need to be, the specific actions that you need to have with a client and the basic principle that at the end of the day, it, this is a game about how many clients that you have and how much money that you do with them. That's it. So as long as I understand that I have to do these actions, let's say one, two, three, four, five actions with, with clients, and I can be more specific about those actions. I have to choose 
who I'm going to be and be consistent for those clients every single second. And depending upon the type of clients that I want to be working with, I need to make sure that my image is like people respond to that image, the type of people that I want to be working with. And it's, it's really that basic. And it makes me think of my last boss that I ever had. She was someone who, um, and I think she would say this too. I don't say this to be disrespectful was not the most beautifully, beautifully sound technical hairdresser in the world. She's she's a decent hairdresser, but Mm. she wasn't, she wasn't going to go on stage and go do all these beautiful things that you would see from very, very just successfully creative artists. That wasn't her game. She was so successful. And the one thing that I recognized, and she literally had like three haircuts and three colors that you could, that you could get from her. There was nothing special or fancy. That sounds like my first boss as well. (laughs) Yes. Sorry, carry on. He was exactly the same. Every single day she showed up in a suit from the store called BB in her five inch stilettos. That was her gig with her makeup looking exactly the same with her hair looking exactly the same. She was the exact same woman every single day for three years that I worked for her. I never saw her look any different than how she showed up every single day. Every single day, she walked the products to the desk to make sure that her clients had them with every single appointment. Every single client got pre-booked. Every single client, like it was the list of these are all the things that every single client gets. Every single client got three of her business cards every single client. And she'd been in the industry at that point for 13 or 15 years. She had built this unbelievable business on so-so talent. Um, Most of us in this industry are not that talented, not like these people that you see on stage, but with so-so technical skills, she built this unbelievable business that was so far above the majority of this industry simply on those basic practices and principles of being consistent. Mm -hmm. And I've said to a lot of people, it doesn't matter what your consistency is. There is a restaurant in this industry that is built on giving horrible service to people, not in this industry, a restaurant in the restaurant industry Mm -hmm. that's called Dick's last resort. It is literally built upon like being an asshole to you. I hope that I can cut (laughs) that. Sorry. There's, there's no other way to say the signs on the wall are like, get the F out. Like that's what they say. Really? And yeah. people block and, and line up around the building to go get treated like garbage, yeah. but they're consistent with how they treat people. They don't care, but you just have to be consistent. And when we start seeing that happen, the world that it opens up for a hairdresser is like nothing you've ever seen. I mean, I've got a kid in my business that's very, very close to making $200,000 a year behind the chair. Earning potential for themselves. That's what Taking they it home. That's potential, yeah. Taking yeah. Well, yeah, great. Okay. Yes. How, and he's not old? a kid. Right, he's not Pardon? a kid. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly, Two hundred grand. that's great money. Yeah. You know, that's phenomenal yeah. money, I mean, to put it mildly. Right. And, the, and he doesn't own the business. He's an employee. He doesn't, he doesn't have sleepless nights about all the other stuff. But I love that you said that because he does not physically own the business. And I'll say this to everyone across the world, like owning a business, like I, I own the lease. I sign the lease. I own yeah. the risk. Mm-hmm. I, I own the, the responsibility of I'm the only one that can't quit. 
Like I mm. own those things, but yeah. that, that man, um, and his name's Tyler Watchell. You should, guys should go follow him. He's at the Houston stylist. Mm. He owns that business behind mm. the chair. So it doesn't, he doesn't have the risk and he doesn't have to order the inventory supplies and he doesn't have to do all of that stuff. But if you're successful yeah, sure. in this industry, it doesn't matter what your compensation model is. And it doesn't matter if you're in a suite and it doesn't matter whatever the successful people in this industry own their business behind the chair, regardless of how they're paid or what their responsibility level is. And that's something that I think we need, we definitely need to get better at here. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. As a, as someone who has a, um, this isn't a very quick, clear question. It's not clear at all. Hairdressers are very emotional. I'm not suggesting for one minute that you're not emotional. You're you've got this this great balance between. I often talk about the emotional world of the hairdresser and the rational world of business. And a lot of hairdressers live and breathe the emotional world of the hairdresser. And they're not particularly that well engaged with the rational world of business. Now, uh, coming from your, you, you have both, okay? You, you have this way of understanding and looking at business. So I suppose what I'm asking you about is this. Did you at some point sort of see what I suppose is just blatantly obvious anyway, but particularly blatantly obvious to you that hairdressers could work smarter, not harder, you know, that, that, that they could increase their average bills. They could even do less clients and walk out the door with more money. Like seeing that relationship between, you know, client count, average bills, pre-booking percentages, how the numbers all work and that what was possible, what the potential is, because the potential, as you say, is incredible. So what are your thoughts so about that? The working smarter, not harder, and can't they see it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause it's so obvious in, in so many cases, isn't it? It's obvious that they know it's obvious if they're trained, it's obvious if they're, if they're taught, it's obvious if they practice. Mm -hmm. Um, unfortunately in our industry, there's not a lot of, um, there's a lot of information. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of information, but we sometimes in this industry believe that things should come differently for us than everyone else in this world that's ever done anything. I mean, anyone who's great at anything has had to practice it. Anyone who's great at, if you're great at speaking, you've probably practiced that speech 500 million times. If you're great at hitting a baseball, you have swung that bat <laughs> tens of thousands of hundreds yeah. of thousands of times. Yeah. Like you've practiced, you've, you've, you've worked on it. With the emotional versus, um, let's say, analytical side that I think you see in business versus this, every single person in their brain and body has a natural, a natural place that they go to first. So they first react emotionally or first react analytic analytically. You have different types of thinkers, but everybody has both. Everybody has the ability to have both. What we have to get to is the understanding around this, around the facts, maybe. There are plain facts in this industry. And when you understand those plain facts, it doesn't matter whether you're analytical or whether you're emotional. There's plain facts in building a business. It's how many clients do you have and how much money are they paying? Mm -hmm. If you don't have clients, you need to build a clientele. If you're not making, if you have a full clientele, you're not making the money that you, that you want to make. They're not either, either those clients tickets aren't high enough 
or you need to get new clients so you can raise their, raise their ticket. Like mm -hmm. it's very basic stuff. What I think is the biggest challenge in our industry are probably two things. Number one, the access to information that actually matters because there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of people in this industry, and this may not be popular, who are really good at marketing, who are really great at marketing, but their content and what they're delivering in truth to actually bring true success is, doesn't work. It's not, it's, it's not great for the future of our industry or the past of our industry, but it's sexy. It's sexy and it's cool. And it sounds awesome. And it's coming from people who are wearing cool hats and, and have cool graphics. That's awesome. I don't mean to be disrespectful. It's just truth. Yeah, totally understand. Um, and, you know, the second thing, we're going to have to just come to terms with the fact that if you want to be successful, you're going to have to do some things that you probably don't want to do. But what's really cool about doing stuff that you don't want to do is if you do it over and over and over and over, eventually you don't think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And if we, as an industry, those of us who, in, who are in spaces of leadership, and by the way, anybody who's listening, you're in a space of leadership if anyone looks to you as someone that they want to be. So if you have a clientele and someone wants to have a clientele or wants to be you or whatever, you are in a space of leadership and we've got to own it. So when more people start stepping up to actually own the space of leadership that they are in, regardless of whether or not they ask for it, you didn't get a chance to ask for it, but you did it. Once those people, those of us who are in that space choose to step up and it doesn't mean you have to become a coach or a consultant or do this or do that. You just need to be a fantastic example to people and then give back a little bit, but give back a little bit, be a mentor to somebody, like share that with somebody and more successful people who are slamming themselves into a white box inside these sweet businesses and cutting themselves off from the rest of the future of this industry. It really sucks. I wish it wasn't happening, but if we could find people from the time that they were very, very beginning in this industry, give them the basic tools and knowledge that they need the understanding that they're going to have to practice it. They're probably going to suck somewhere along the way. Please don't quit before you stop sucking and then find somebody that'll help guide you that will actually selflessly do it. And we become a less self-focused, self-involved, involved industry. We'll probably see some things grow forward and, and get better for people. Good. Great speech. Um, you, you and I were on a clubhouse uh, event a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, whatever. And um, you were talking in that, or you touched on it. You didn't really talk about it in depth. You, you mentioned apprenticeship program. And you very, you know, in the U.S., most training is all through beauty school. Um, you didn't really dig into what you meant by apprenticeship program. Um, but tell me about that. What, what is your apprenticeship program in the salon? So in our salon, when someone, and it, when a new stylist comes in, and we... I was about to say we only hire new stylists. I actually just hired my first season stylist in five years, but she has some growth to do too. We have this program where you come in, you're given the technical, the business and the life skills that you need. Most young people, not just this industry, most young people do not have life skills. Parents are overwhelmed, working, tired. The education system in America is not what it needs to be. 
So these kids are coming out, they have no life skills. They have no communication skills. You have to train them and teach them those things. And then what our apprenticeship looks like is people are put together with a stylist who will create balance for things that they need, who will act as their mentor. They're their connected person inside the salon that not only is going to teach them to get great at business, but is also going to help guide their journey throughout the time that they're growing to become the hairstylist that they're going to be. And in our salon, that responsibility, you know, I still feel completely responsible for my, for Tyler that I talked about earlier, who's going to make $200,000. He was my apprentice for um, a little less than a year when he first started his career. I still feel responsible for his career and his journey. Now it's a different type of responsibility and we have a different relationship. He's not standing behind me watching me cut hair. He's killing it. He's far surpassed me um, in so many ways, but I still feel responsible for him. And not just because I own the business he works in, but because I feel responsible for his career and his forward movement. So that apprenticeship is something I believe is one of the most valuable assets in this industry. And it's not where a lot of people took it. A lot of people took it. I've heard people speak on stages and say, you just need to assume you're going to lose people. You just need to set it up to basically get them in and out, do this, do that. The strong will survive. I'm like, if we keep saying the strong will survive, we're going to be stuck in a space where kids who really love this and who really want to do this and are really passionate about doing it and are passionate about people are going to keep quitting because they don't have all of the skills that we want them to have so they can become super successful. I believe it's our responsibility to train the human, train the hairdresser, make sure they have all of the things that they need to grow, to become successful. And the investment that we put in on the front end pays off in a big way on the back end. Yeah, yeah. So when you talk about that, you know, train the human, not just train the hairdresser, uh, what, what does that look like? What sort of education, you know, programs or things do you have in place, you know, that, that you know, make that happen? So we're going to look at everything from the psychology of dealing with a client. So let's look at um, psychology communication. Let's look at someone that comes in and their natural nature is to deal with people the same way that you deal with people in a day-to-day friend or family relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Dealing with a client or a guest or whatever you call them, um, is the relationship is still a human to human relationship, but there's a difference between the human to human relationship and a relationship where there's an exchange of money. When once a relationship, it's training things like this. Once a relationship moves to a friendship that's supposed to have an exchange of money, it will no longer have a business backing to it. So what we're going to start working on is honing the skills that they need to make sure that they understand how to build that professional relationship. But when you talk about even life skills and the human skills, we're looking at human connection. We're looking at when we talk about consultation, consultation for us, isn't just a series of questions. It's really being able to hear everything that you need from that person to be able to take all of the tools that you have and give them what they need that they may not have even known that they needed because they didn't know to ask for it. It's, it's life skills, personal development. It's bigger, bigger picture than just, you know, what to do with a tint brush and a pair of scissors and comb. You know, it's helping someone yes. on their life journey to be a better person. And that, and that links in with something you've already alluded to, which is retention. 
um, because I know you've got really good retention rates. And it's not just because there's a potential to earn, you know, a, a big paycheck. It's, it's because it's about more than that. It always has to be about more than that. It can't just be about the money. It always has to be about more than that. So um, I believe in what you're doing totally with that, you know, helping people become better humans and, and, and uh, you know, exposing them to education and also exposing them to opportunities and experiences that a lot of them haven't had. What do you look for? When you're employing people, I know you're in that fortunate situation, as you said, where you don't actually look for that many people because you don't have to employ people because you've got good retention. But, you know, since COVID, you've alluded to the fact that you've lost at least one person and you've replaced them. What is it you're looking for with those people? It's interesting, Anthony, because I want to be really transparent. We have lost some people and we are in the process of looking for people. We just, we build we build people more than we hire people. So when we do face a loss in people, which we haven't, we haven't experienced that a lot other than this last year. Um, when that does happen and we are looking for people, we're typically looking for people that we can grow. So our growth to get back to those stylists may be a little bit slower, but when we're looking for someone we're looking, we have three core values at our salon. It's very simple. It's being team-based education-driven guest focused, no matter what team-based education-driven guest focused. So we're looking for people who innately have that in their vision for the salon that they want to be a part of. So we may ask that question. What are you looking for? Name five things that you're looking for in a salon the right people, those three things are going to come in that top three out of five. And that's the first thing that we're looking for in connectivity is do you innately want what we have? Because a lot of people want what we have when it's laid out in front of them, but really at the core of who they are, we don't want to sell ourselves first. We want to know what you really want first. And then we'll talk about how those things align. And I feel like a lot of us as business owners sell ourselves. We go out and we, um, we say, this is everything that we offer. And of course, yeah, that sounds awesome. Like I want all of that stuff, give it to me. But if there were some things in my world, really, that were really important to me that you don't offer, but I got distracted because all of that sounds awesome. But this one thing was really, really, really important to me that I didn't really say anything about because we never talked about it. That one thing's going to win out and they're not going to stay. So at the core of everything, I'm looking for a a person who just inside their body is a good person looking for somebody who is dying to learn and is coachable looking for somebody that doesn't think that they know everything because none of us do. And I'm looking for somebody who is going to mesh really well with those people. And I'll, I'll share really early on in the journey. I'd say about four years into owning fringe probably earlier than that, I started to realize it, but it took until then for me to actually make the final cut. About four years in, I recognized that anyone that I hired, like me just personally, anyone that I hired, they never worked out. (laughs) They never worked out. I have this belief that I can save the world, right? You heard me say it earlier in the podcast. I have this belief that there's this bigger picture thing. So if I were to see something fantastic in someone and 95% of what they, what they were was not a match for us and 5% they were, 
I would look at that 5%, like, well, when you get here and when you're here, I just believe you're going to love it so much and everything's going to change and you're going to change and it's going to be amazing. And immediately, I mean, that person would start the first day. My whole team would know that it was the wrong hire. Nobody would tell me they would trust me and give me the benefit of the doubt. But here's a a thing I think for business owners that we have to get really aware of, you know, you have to know what you're really good at and what you're not. Mm. I am not great at hiring because I see the very best and sometimes the best that's not even there in people. Mm -hmm. And my team, however, they are protective of the culture. They know who we are. They know who the person is that, that they're looking for. They want to work with. So we're looking for that balance between the things that I said and that just feeling that you have, that this person just fits. And we find that out by them coming to spend some time with us at the, at the salon, but we're looking for just at the core, a good person coachable, trainable, who wants what we want without us telling them what we want mm-hmm. and us finding a way to, to click and align those things. As, as a big question, what you're talking about sometimes comes under the banner of the word culture. Mm-hmm. How would you define culture and how do you create culture? Culture to me is just, it, it's just a collection of people and how they behave. That's it. Okay. Collection of people and how they behave. And people believe, I think a lot of leaders and owners believe that they can create culture, but they can lead and present on a document what the culture of the business is, but that doesn't mean that any people have to comply and whatever the people are doing, whatever they believe, however they behave, that's the culture of the business. So culture is a collection of behavior of people and you know, we can, as leaders, lead that in a different way. And there are certainly elements that people disregard in culture. So for instance, most people look at culture as, do we feel good? Is it kumbaya? Are we sitting around the campfire, you know, loving each other? Are we going out to dinner together? So on and so forth. But culture in a business is really one of the top things that we could do um, to be focused on improving culture in businesses, especially in this industry, is to make sure that we have a focus on results. Because culture in a team, a team doesn't really function unless they have a goal to win at. I mean, that's the whole point of the game, right? Is to win the game. If you don't know what you're aiming for, it's very difficult to have a a culture that really produces anything other than people who either love or hate each other. And if our whole business is built on whether or not people love or hate each other, (laughs) that's not really, it's not really a healthy or successful way to have it. But we define culture. Like I'll hear a lot of people say, we have such a solid culture. We're so good. Everybody loves each other. Loving each other is not what culture is about. We have to respect each other, not in business. We have to respect each other. We need to want to be on the same page, but culture is really at the end of it. It's just, it's how people act together. It's, it's the journey that we're on. And if we can get to a space where we're a little bit, a little bit more results driven and presenting, you know, this is the direction that we're going, you can start to see culture shift beyond just do we love or hate each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I often will talk about that in the context of, and you touched on it before, about what your three, three values were when you're recruiting people. And I, I often say to people that you, uh, it's easier to employ people that already share your values than try and change someone else's values. So 
you you create culture by employing people that are a fit that already believe in the same things that share the same uh, you know the same the same values that they they value the same things that you know it's important to them. Um, you just touched on what I want to start to wrap up with, and that is the whole productivity thing. Um, what, what are the top three? key performance indicators that, that you look at in your business with your team members? The top three that we look at are care factor, which is percentage of guests purchasing retail, mm-hmm. utilization, the percentage that you're booked behind the chair and pre-booking. Those are the top three that we focus on. And I want to first say, I'm not advocating to tell anyone else that those need to be the top three in your business, mm-hmm. but I can't yeah. share why those are the top three in ours. Um, if you'd like me to do that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So over the course of 10 plus years in business and doing a lot of research for um, development of hairstylists and and salons and salon owners, doing a lot of research in and out of this industry to really try to figure out what what it is that we're going to do, what is going to be the right thing. Because we had some people who were really responding to money-driven metrics. We had some people who were responding to percentages. Some people were responding to a lot of different things. We started to dial back and figure out, look, we need one system that's going to be the same for everyone that should, everyone should be measured the same on. And when we're looking at, because a lot of systems are set up for career path development in key, with key performance indicators to be different at different levels in this industry. Well, it's not any, like there's no, no less success that a young stylist in this industry should be having compared to a stylist who's been in this industry for a really long time. There's no less pre-booking that should be happening based upon where you are in this industry. There's no less retail that should be being sold to your clients, depending upon where you are in this industry. We were looking for a way to normalize it, but also we were looking for a way to attach behavior instead of just result to KPIs. Mm-hmm. So pre-booking was already one that all of us know, whether you call it rebooking, pre-booking, whatever. Everyone knows and understands pre-booking. It's the percentage of people who leave with an appointment at the time of their service. So that told us that you were getting that person back on the books so that they didn't have to fight for an appointment. That's the behavior that it taught us. And we knew that if you were doing that, you were helping to also secure your finances and predict your future. And that's one thing that we were looking for. So we started measuring pre-booking being one of the things. Utilization helps us understand how busy you are and also how productive you are with add-on services because utilization and people don't think about it this way. They think about it just as the clients that are in their, in their chair, but your utilization gets affected depending upon your software system. Your utilization gets affected by additional add-on services that you see as well. So you're starting to see how productive you are behind the chair. And we're looking for how productive are you with the clients that you have? So percentage that you're booked compared to percentage of compared to the number of hours that you are scheduled. The last thing is care factor. And this is the one that I want to touch on the most because it was the, it's the most impactful thing. And to give you an idea at our height in 2019, when we were at our prior to COVID hitting and everyone's faced a loss in guests, everyone's faced if you face a loss or tightening in schedule. So you can't see as many people um, at our height. We were nine, we had nine stylists and did, um, I think it was like $350,000 a year in retail. 
we're big retailing salon. We believe in it. It helps with retention. It helps with all of that. But the number one thing, because too many people focus on the dollars with retail, and of course the dollars are important. That's what drives profit and all of those things we could talk about. But the number one thing when we looked at care factor and the importance of it is it taught us that it told us the behavior of how many, how successful were we with getting clients to believe us and trust us to buy their hair care with us and let us be the ones to take care of their hair at home. How Mm -hmm. successful were we with their trust care factor taught us that. And so that's the third one that we focused on because it tells us about the trust factor with the client because most people are not conditioned to buy their shampoo at their hair salon. We killed that a long time ago in this industry when we didn't make it a priority. So that's a measure that we focus on. So they're all behavior driven metrics that tell us about the conversations that are happening about our follow through about our closing rate. It tells us about all of those things. So those are the three main that we focus on, especially with coaching stylists. Okay. Uh, so, so last question, just on that, actually, is, is what would you aim for as a care factor? So as a percentage of clients, it's a, so, so care factor is, how did you define that again? It's the percentage of, what, what percentage of your total sales is retail. Not percentage of total sales. So this, right. is about, this is about the number of clients. So if 10 people walk in the door yeah. and four of them walk out with product, that's yeah. 40% care factor. There's a lot okay. of people who call it service sketch purchasing retail. Yeah. So there's different metrics depending upon, again, what, what salon software system you're using, yeah. what, what kind of manufacturer you're with. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, when we're looking at target, our target is 40%. Mm-hmm. That's our baseline target to get a, um, to get a, to get a promotion, Thanks hello, so to get a promotion right. okay. in our industry within our level system. Now, most salons are functioning at nine to 12% with care factor. Mm-hmm. Most salons are functioning at nine to 12%. Where we're aiming for with salons across the country as a first step is let's get our first step. Let's get us up to 30. Let's get us up to 30. Let's get to three out of 10 that are leaving with product. Let's get to 30. But at our height, when we were, all of that was happening, all that was going on prior to COVID hitting, our um, care factor was at 52% across the board as a salon. So we have people who, who sit at 60%. We've had, we've had people end out months at 70%. Like it's when you're working the behaviors and focused up more on the behaviors than just the dollars, and every business owner out there, you still need to track your dollars. This is really for coaching of your hairstylist. You're focused on the behaviors. The dollars naturally come. Yeah. yeah. Good. Okay. Look, unfortunately, I could talk to you for ages, but unfortunately, we need to uh, wrap up. Whereabouts can people connect with you on Instagram or other social media channels? So the first place that you can connect with me is on Fuse Republic. So it's F-U-S-E and then Word Republic. And you can find Tim Humphreys and myself there. That's the best place to go. I do have a personal or professional Instagram. It's Ashley Tolliver Williams that you can also follow. But Fuse is where the majority of anything that's good is is going to come out. So um, please follow Fuse Republic. And you can, um, we're at Fuse Republic on any social media channel and, and anywhere that you find us. Okay, and I'll, I'll put those links in the show notes as well. So if you're listening to this podcast with Ashley Tolliver-Williams and have enjoyed it, 
then do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone, share it to your Instagram stories, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any of the amazing guests that I'm so lucky to talk to. So to wrap up, Ashley, thank you ever so much for being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I'm really looking forward to listening back to this myself. There's a lot of real gems of wisdom in there. So uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for you know, sharing your time with, with uh, our audience today. Anthony, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.